On episode 279 of the Tennis Balls podcast, you'll learn all about brain-based tennis training with Richard Bryce. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the show. It's a pleasure to have you on listening. And today's episode is all about applied neurology, aka brain-based tennis training with Richard Bryce, as I mentioned in the intro. And I'm really excited to have Richard, uh, teach you the importance of brain-based tennis training. I first caught wind of him at my friend Peter Freeman's Tennis Con event, which is a great one uh, every year. And I was really impressed by the methodology in which uh, that, that Richard used to help train players. And a lot of it is about the importance of vision uh, for tennis and really recognizing that a lot of players can really enhance their game and enjoyment of it and execution of shots, hitting balls much more cleanly if they can recognize that their vision uh, has you know issues or weaknesses. And, and then there are exercises that Richard can have you go through to improve them, uh, improve your vision. And there's uh, some other topics that we uh, talk about as well and involving um, injuries and technique, especially on the serve and whatnot. So yeah, this is very, very cool because there are, again, exercises that you can implement. They're pretty simple. I actually have uh, been doing them lately myself and it's very effective. So with that, I will uh, leave you to my interview with Richard Bryce. Everybody, welcome to the podcast. It's really an honor and a pleasure to have on Richard Bryce, aka the Tennis Hacker, on the show. Really excited to have you on, Richard, um, because we are going to talk about a topic that we don't really talk about too much. You know, I can't I can't remember the last time we talked about um, brain-based tennis training on the show. So it's just really cool to have a unique guest as yourself on. But uh, I guess first off, how's everything going with you these days? It's fantastic. And thank you much for inviting me on. I, I really appreciate it. It's definitely a slightly different topic for tennis, but hopefully people enjoy it. From my end, it, it's going really well, getting to play lots awesome. of tennis. And that's the main thing. Yeah, definitely. That's number one, um, being able to play and enjoying your tennis. And, you know, your channel helps us really, uh, really, uh, you know, maximize our enjoyment of tennis, your channel and your content and all that, as we'll talk about. But I guess first off, Richard, I mean, you know, a lot of people, including myself, to be honest, didn't really know exactly what brain-based tennis training is, which I guess uh, is another word or a couple words for that is applied neurology. So can you explain to us what, what this concept is? Uh, definitely. It's something that I got into over time. So I grew up playing tennis and I was kind of a reasonable county player back in the UK, but I only got to a certain point. There was just always people that were better than me. I went into coaching and, you know, that's kind of what I worked in for a long time before I started ten, uh, training tennis players. But I'd had a series of concussions. And when I started to kind of try and rehabilitate those concussions, I, you know, sought out various different things. And eventually I got to a doctor that started to teach me about the applied neurology side of things. My concussion symptoms started to go away. And at the age of 35, I suddenly started to be able to do stuff on the tennis court that I hadn't been able to do at any point in my life. So brain-based tra tennis training is just basically brain-based rehabilitation exercises. You know, the brain controls everything we do. So, you know, tennis is all about hand-to-eye coordination. That's controlled by the brain. So if you can't process visual information well enough, that's going to limit what happens on court. And that was certainly the case for me my whole life. And then the same thing with coordination. So that's really what it's all about, finding areas that you know, aren't working as well as we can and then training the brain in the same way that we would train our muscles or train a fitness, just kind of working on it progressively to improve skill level. 
So that's kind of what it's all about. Gotcha, Richard. And so it's very interesting. I mean, I don't know, maybe if you could tell us about one of the, uh, <laughs> maybe you don't want to like necessarily recount it. It's probably not that fun, but you know, how, you know, how you got the concussion and then how, how did the, um, you know, brain-based training, like how did that help you like with the concussion? Like what did it, what was the problem or problems? And then how did that help you get better? So I had a lot of concussions. You know, growing, I'm a little bit older, so You're growing wild up, man. they weren't called concussions. <laughs> yeah, I was just having you, you know, it's what happened. You got knocked out playing sport and you just got back on the field and you, you carried on playing. So there'd been many, many incidents of that, playing soccer, playing rugby, and some pretty good ones from mountain biking. The final one that got me into the neurology was uh, the mountain biking, but I'd always had a problem with injuries. So that started literally from the age of 10 or 11, and that was a problem all the way through my kind of trying to be my tennis career and my soccer career because they were both my main sports. I'd always struggled with a lot of injuries, so a lot of my education was around trying to address those injuries, although it didn't really change. So one of the big things for me was just pain when I played and repeated injuries and then things like brain fog, and I would serve, and my serve was good but then I couldn't see the ball after I'd served. Mm -hmm. So I'd be in a good position and everything would be blurry. So my serve plus one definitely wasn't as good as it could have been because of that. So there was a whole bunch of different symptoms. Honestly, now I look back and I understand it a little bit more. I used to be one of those people that made a lot of excuses on court. It was, you know, I was very negative in terms of my mindset, which I now understand and look back at as more anxiety type behavior. Now that I don't have it, from doing the brain-based training. So I had a whole bunch of different symptoms, which I hadn't necessarily thought about as being related to the concussions. Because when they start at a young age and you grow up with all these things, it's just how things are. You only start to realize when they suddenly disappear, when you get quite a bit, up, bit older. So lots of symptoms, many blows to the head. And you know, steady progress in terms of different things improving at different points after starting the, the brain-based training. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff, uh, Richard. And um, I guess, uh, how did you decide that you wanted to, you know, pursue this? Because, you know, as a profession as well, like, and I guess a related question is, were you finding that this was a really prevalent problem? Because I guess, uh, I have uh, I've got some friends, you know, who they have they have trouble, um, you know, concentrating on the ball. There's one that says that, you know, when he tosses the ball, he can't even like look at it when he serves. So I don't know. There could be something you could probably help him out with there. But I guess how prevalent is this issue for tennis players? Because I don't think people think about this that much, to be honest. It's prevalent for all tennis players. So we all watch these amazing players play on TV. And they can do the things that they do because of how their body works and good technical understanding and good tactical awareness. But your body has to function at that level. So you're trying to return 130, 140 mile an hour serve. That doesn't happen with amazing, without amazing visual processing and ability to read and predict where the ball's going. So, you know, I'm not necessarily saying everyone's had concussions, but people's visual systems function in a certain way. And if they don't function at a sufficiently high level, it basically maxes out where people can get to in terms of their performance. Because, you know, technical understanding is obviously very important, but if your body can't do something, it can't do it. So it's extremely pre pre prevalent. You know, professional tennis players use this type of training to really optimize the level for your kind of more intermediate style adult the deficits that we're normally working with are normally much, much bigger, but then that gives you greater potential for improvement. Got it, Richard. So I guess in other words, for the most part, I mean, I guess a big thing that separates like top players from maybe like uh, the lower rank players, even on the pro tour is that they're just really good in terms of like their, their tennis uh, vision, so to speak. Yeah. And I think someone like Dominic Team or Andy Murray is a, a great example. Like when I try and explain about tracking the ball, Federer is the model, or now Medvedev and Alcaraz, Alcaraz, they kind of line their head up and it's just perfect. But we've also got to appreciate people like Andy Murray and Dominic Team can hit insane forehands. 
while looking down the other end of the court. And the reason that they can do that is because they've got unbelievable visual prediction. If us regular humans start to try and, you know, let's try and hit our forehands looking down there, it just doesn't happen because we don't have the capacity to read and predict where the ball's going and then the coordination to make the adjustments kind of based on that prediction. Yeah, yeah, no, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And and I guess to kind of to put it into more perspective, I mean, there's, you know, there's people who may like initially see you know, this concept and they, they're like, oh, well, I, I've gone to the optometrist and like my vision's 2020 and I'm, you know, perfect. So, but I mean, is that, is that the same thing as what we're talking about? <laughs> so when you go to the optometrist, if we just use that number, perfect vision, 2020, 2020 actually just means average. It means that you can see from 20 feet what a normal average, completely average person without any issues can see from 20 feet. And average is, is different from optimal. So when I first started this stuff, I had you know, 35 over 20 in one eye and 40 over 20 in another eye, but then I got it down to you know, 13 over 20. So what that means is I can now see the ball drastically sooner than I could previously. So that's one side of it is 2020 just means average. You can make it better, or if someone's worse, they can improve it. But it's only one visual skill. It's how clearly you can see something when you're standing or sitting in a doctor's office. That's completely different to how clearly you can see something as you move. And your friends are a great example, the one you've just described. They can't see the ball when they serve. We've got a balance system that lives in our inner ear. It's called our vestibular system. It's literally wired to the eyes so that as I turn my head to the right like that, you can see my eyes move to the left to look at you or the, the camera lens. That's a reflex. So as soon as we start to move our bodies and our head, we've now got reflexes and different visual skills that are responsible for keeping our eyes tracking things. So how clearly you can see something sitting still in the doctor's office isn't necessarily how you can, how clearly you can see things as you're running around on core. So your friend that's looking up when they serve, that maybe suggests that the part of the balance system that detects backwards movement of the head and body might not be communicating with some of the areas that create those eye movements. So we can start to kind of look through what people can't do and figure out, okay, what might we need to start target the training to correct this issue that we're facing on court? Gotcha, Richard. And why do you think, you know, some people's tennis vision is worse than others i mean are there certain things that like maybe we're doing in life that cause this or is it just like i mean is it genetics like well, what are some of the causes do you think well there's a genetic component to you know everything the players that make it on the professional tour they're the ones that had amazing genetics and good coaching and practice and all these other things there are millions and millions of other kids who also had loads of access to coaching and played throughout their lives that didn't make it, you know, potentially because the genetics weren't quite the same as those players. So we all have a genetic component to things that we do. So that's kind of the baseline. But then what you do with your body, what you do with your visual system throughout life is going to kind of guide it. So unfortunately, we go to, well, not unfortunately, we need to go to school, but we start at a very young age, sitting down for six, eight hours, not moving as optimally as we should. And our brains require movement to function properly. We have our eyes kind of locked in a position. We're looking at desks. We're looking at computers for very prolonged periods. And now everyone's got a phone. So we're all sitting with our eyes in specific positions, looking at things that are up close. And I'm, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the term neuroplasticity, but it's basically the brain is changeable. It always changes, doesn't stay still. It either gets better or worse based on the things that you do on a repeated basis. So if people are, you know, looking at a computer for eight, 10 hours a day, that's their, their brain is going to adapt to that. And that doesn't mean that their visual systems are ready to handle the insane demands of playing tennis. Gotcha. So I guess, would you recommend that we do things like just taking breaks and reducing our phone usage? Cause that could definitely kind of push us towards like the type of vision skills that we don't want <laughs> for tennis. For sure. Yeah. If people are spending hours and hours looking down at screens, then they're going to adapt to more close up view as opposed to being able to see things as well in the distance. So there's that side of things. And if we really want to get deeper, 
the vertical scrolling goes on when people are going through social media and things like that. Vertical eye movements tend to, you know, target or they're created by certain parts of the brain, whereas more horizontal and different types of eye movements are created by other parts of the brain. So just literally doing something over and over again, depending on how your system is functioning at the moment, it can be a lot worse for some people than it is for others, but often for many people. Gotcha, gotcha, Richard. And so I guess I guess as an overall concept, like how improve our vision, you know, like we've we've established obviously that it's it's a problem for, you know, many players and uh, you know, we want to get there and that's that's something that can really help us, you know, from you know, making more unforced errors and so forth and hitting cleaner. So what what's like the main thing we need to start doing? So vision training, once you understand it, is is very simple. Most of the exercises are extremely simple. So I always give away a free video or a free program on all of my YouTube channels that just teaches people five or six foundational eye movement exercises. So it can be a different targets in different positions so that we activate the muscles and the nerves and the parts of the brain that create those eye movements, practicing tracking things slowly, practicing making faster switches because there's different brain areas responsible for all of them. So the actual application of those drills is really simple. You just have to do it systematically like you would with any type of training. You know, we know that to make the bicep stronger, we have to bend our arm and we have to make it progressively more challenging over time. So we just apply the same methodology with the visual system. We've got parts of the brain that move the eyes in different directions. So we need to perform those eye movements regularly or those areas start to function less optimally. So again, that's why sitting looking at your phone all day, not so good. Even just getting out and looking into the distance and changing focus is going to start to activate things. But in terms of the training, we just use a, a little bit more of a systematic approach in terms of programming to help make things a little bit more progressive. Gotcha, gotcha. And then in terms of like watching the ball, I mean, there's obviously, uh, you know, some debate about like how long we have to actually watch it in order to be successful. And and so, yeah, I mean, like what, what's the answer to that? Like, what, you know, how long do we need to see uh, watch the ball? Because you see some photos, obviously, of like professionals where their eyes are like, at, on the ball, even at the point of impact, but you know maybe they're not all the players do that. So what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is an evolving thought over the time. You know, the more I train myself, the more I work with other players, and the more I study different aspects of it. I still think what Federer does is kind of the, the model for what we want to do, and what Medvedev does is trying to track the ball as closely as you can with your eyes and head, and keep your head lined up with the contact point for as long as possible, well, not for as long as possible, but for a fraction of a second, maybe longer than you would expect. I know people talk a lot about eye dominance and we can touch on that more if you want to, mm. but if you're looking directly at that target, we've got our focus vision that looks directly at the target. Can we see it going on and off the strings? There's debate around that, but if we're looking roughly at that contact point, we can now see it on and off with our peripheral vision. So we can detect movement in our peripheral vision. We've got more chance of having more awareness of where that ball is than if we're looking down the far end of the court. And I guess that the most fascinating thing for me over the last couple of years is now I can hit very consistent shots without keeping my head still, doing a terrible job of what I was supposed to be doing, looking down the other end of the court, because I've got my visual prediction to a certain point where now I, I'm very good at reading where the ball's going. So I can effectively, you know, become a little bit sloppy and still hit the ball very consistently and very cleanly. So that's why it's been a little bit more of an, uh, an evolving thing for me over time. Cause I didn't need to used to, uh, didn't used to have to do that. So now I'm kind of, okay, the visual prediction is obviously a very important part of this, but I still think for optimal trying to track it with the head. Now I think there's, you know, little nuances to it. Can you track it as it bounces or do you kind of track it to just before the bounce? And then your eyes make a fast little switch more towards where the contact point is going to be. So there's kind of nuances in there um, that we could argue either way. And there's some slow motion footage of different players that suggest that that's maybe what's happening. But that's kind of how I, I think about it at the moment. Gotcha. Gotcha. And um in terms of like the uh, you know the reps and set, uh, sets and whatnot, you said it's it 
we should kind of think about it as like working out any other muscle. So I, is that kind of the case that we're doing sort of like three, three sets of 10 or three sets of 12 sorts of um, things. And, and also like, is it something where we can do the exercises or should do them every day or should we give some sort of break? And is there at some point where it's like, it would be an overload and actually be detrimental if we did to a certain, you know, pass a certain point. Um, so the main target that we're thinking of is the, the brain areas rather than the muscles, the muscles will get worked, but there's going to be a tremendous variability in the amount of training that people can tolerate just like there is with everything else. If we compare the training that Djokovic and Nadal and Serena Williams can tolerate, uh, you know, people that have got full-time jobs and families and all these other stresses going on, there is a, a huge range in what's possible. And it's going to be the same thing with a visual system. If I use me and as, an, as an example, when I first started doing this, I mentioned I had a bit of a concussion history. So if I held certain targets in certain directions, if I tipped my head back and tried to look at a target, after two or three seconds, I was feeling sick because I'd had so many issues in the past. So when I started to work with people using the brain-based stuff, I would get everyone really gently doing things. And I'd have people in their 70s going, what are you on about? This is so easy. I, it's completely fine. I'm like, wow. So there's this whole variation depending on how your system is functioning. If your visual system is very compromised, there's the potential that you know you might feel very tired doing what should be a simple exercise. If the vestibular system, the balance system in the, in the inner ear is compromised, turning of your head and that type of exercise can make you feel very dizzy initially. So if that's the case, then people are going to need to start out at a much lower level and it's all very individual. So I normally start with, you know, two, three, four, five repetitions of each drill on, on the first day and then see how your body responds because the next day people can feel absolutely awful or they can feel the best they've felt in years. It's, it's that sort of variation. The eyes are literally attached to the brain via a nerve. So we're targeting brain areas. So small amounts can be very, very powerful. So I know it's not a straight answer, but that's because there's such a tremendous variation. So my approach is always start off nice and safely, start off nice and small. If you feel great the next day, let's train again the next day and, and increase it. But still thinking, okay, we need an amount of rest and recovery because we, we do need to recover from different things. Yeah. I mean, that, that approach sounds like, you know, it applies to a lot in life as well. Um, starting out yeah. kind of small and, and figuring it out. Curious, you know, like if, if you're like trying one of the exercises there and then you do feel like kind of sick and whatnot, like, is that just a matter of like going back to the same exercise, but then, uh, but doing lower reps or like adjusting, or is it sometimes like a sign of like some other issue or have you just found like maybe all of those apply in some cases? Yeah, exactly. All of them apply in some cases. I'm always very sensible with training. So when, you know, people in my program, like if you feel sick when you do this, it happens very more frequently than you would think. Rest for 30 seconds, rest for a couple of minutes. It should go away. And if it goes away, then, you know, we'll just start training and build up a little bit more slowly. But if someone does a vestibular exercise and then they feel sick for hours afterwards, definitely worth going to a doctor or going to an eye doctor and getting checked out medically. And it's always important to be as sensible and safe with training. Normally they'll go to a medical professional and say, yeah, you, you know, you're okay. Just build up more slowly. But that's the way I, I kind of approach it. Gotcha, Richard. So if, and I know, and I highly recommend that people check out, um, you know, your website, which we'll link in the show notes and your YouTube channel, tennis hacker. If you, you know, type that in, obviously you'll, you'll see some fantastic videos. If you were to suggest maybe just like one exercise that you think would just really help players in terms of like making contact on the ball, uh, what would that exercise be? Oh, one? That's, that's like saying, yeah, I mean, there's so many, so but just, just like one. I don't want to give away, you know, all your stuff. <laughs> but I am, I'm happy to. That's why I try and make lots of videos with these exercises. I want as many people doing them as possible. So that people can enjoy tennis more, and yeah, so that's. But if I was to just give one, I think I would choose a VOR or okay. a vestibular ocular reflex. So looking at targets, and if I look at the camera lens and turn my head, that is the VOR that keeps my eyes looking at that target. 
So this is the reflex that connects the visual system and the eyes, and obviously it communicates with the receptors in the neck and the, the movement systems as well. So if I was only allowed one, that would be it. Because if we do that in all directions, we are going to be activating the eye muscles. We're going to be activating the nerves. And you know, very importantly, we're going to be working on the vestibular system. And that's based on my kind of growing number of players that I've worked with doing this is the area that a lot of players need work in. And that's why tennis is so challenging because of the amount of you know, challenge for this part of the brain, because we're moving and twisting and turning and doing all these different things. So that would be the one exercise I would go for. Got it. So keeping your eyes on, on a focal point and then turning your head. Got it. That's mm -hmm. a good one. All right. Well, Richard, since you're so kind, <laughs> I'll, I'll ask you for one more. And uh, just to also prep, I did actually uh, sign up for your newsletter and I got this uh, fantastic, you know, program um, for free. And, um, you know, it had a bunch of great exercises and I, I really enjoyed doing them. And I did them last night. But uh, what is maybe one more that you could uh, let us know about? The rest of them in that free program. Um, well, if I'm only allowed one more, I would go for fast eye switches. So fancy name is Cicades, but looking between two different targets and making switches. The main reason is because we've got parts of the brain that control smooth movements and parts of the brain that control fast movements. And if the ball's coming really quickly, making fast eye switches is what we have to do to kind of just skip ahead of where the ball is to kind of keep up with it. So I would do fast eye switches in different directions as well. But it's very hard to keep it to two. I'm starting to have self-doubt creep in as I say that. Should I choose that one or a different one? <laughs> <laughs> you give them all if you want but i i do have a question about that that one. So i was doing that one i mean as, as with the first one you mentioned the vor but um you know i i found myself like increasingly going like as fast as possible and i was wondering i guess two questions about that one is the um the the yeah i mean the the quickness or tempo of the eye switching like is there some sort of speed or like guidelines we should keep in mind as to how fast we should uh switch from one point to the other the faster and more accurately we can make switches, the better it's going to be for our tennis. So uh, I would approach it in the same way that people approach tennis. It's going to be better to have accuracy first rather than hitting it as hard as you can over the back fence. So the same thing with our eye switches. So when you're making that switch, try and focus on the target. And you know it should be clear, hopefully, when you look at it. But for some people, switch between targets and it'll take a second or two for the thing that they're looking at to become clear. So getting the quality of the eye switch is going to be most important first and then improving the speed of that over time. But we can, there's kind of the general training here. We just make those eye switches, but then we can also kind of assess them on a slightly deeper level because sometimes you might switch a target and instead of your eyes landing on that target, they fall short or they go past it. So in terms of quality, we're actually kind of thinking about that stuff as well. Because if each time you make an eye switch, and it's going to be happening a whole bunch of different times as the ball's moving towards you. If each time you do it, there's an inaccuracy, that's going to be very challenging in terms of your ability to efficiently track the ball onto the strings. And or it's going to be using up a lot more energy and reserves that it should be doing which is, it means it's much more tiring than it should be. So accuracy and speed is kind of the goal. Yeah, that's great stuff. Yeah, because I think at one point when I was going quite fast, I was still landing on, on the targets, but I think at some point, like I had a little bit of like double vision, you know, where the finger like looked like it was two fingers and whatnot. So uh, is that a sign of anything in particular or should it, does this mean I should slow down? <laughs> It's a sign of something particular. So at no point when you're doing that, should there be any double vision. If the target that you're looking at starts to split in two, um, now we're, we're generally thinking about an eye alignment thing. So there's, mm. there's two kinds of double vision. If, you wanna, if I just look at something with one eye and I get double vision, then that maybe points more towards kind of the shape of the eyeball and you know some kind of stuff that you definitely want to go and get checked out more medically from uh, an eye doctor. But if it's okay with one eye, whichever direction you're looking with one eye, we see one image. If we then start to look at things with two eyes and we're now getting a bit of double vision, then that's the eyes aren't quite pointing at the target. 
in the way that you would want to, because each eye is a camera lens. Their job is to point at the same target, so our brain can use both of those images to create 3D vision. So what you just described there is maybe, is it because of the speed you were going or is it because you've been going for a period of time and there was an element of things getting tired and now, you know, one of the eyes isn't quite lining up in the way that it should. Yeah, I think it was a combination. I also did have glasses on. I don't know if that played a part in it, but yeah, I just remember in the, you know, the beginning was fine, but then I was on probably my last set um, and the last few reps and I was just like, I was going really fast. And then at that point, I think I experienced some of the, you know, the, the fingers that like, like looked like it was in two, kind of like when you bring your finger towards your nose and then eventually it like, you know, looks like there's two of them. <laughs> so Hopefully it shouldn't look like it's them. Hopefully you can get it all the way in without it splitting in two. And you know, that's one of the assessments that we use for that skill. But if you're doing it really fast and it was the third set that you'd done, then that, you know, it suggests that there's just, there was a little bit of fatigue towards the end. So yeah. in terms of your tennis, what you'd be thinking is if you're playing a long match and after you've done a whole bunch of different eye movements, which obviously is happening during the course of a tennis match, if the eye alignment starts to go off later in matches, that's going to dramatically increase the difficulty and the amount of you know, errors that you're going to be making later in matches relative to what it could be if you had more endurance in those areas. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Great point. Very important stuff. And, and also, I guess, um, made me think of like eyewear and, and contacts and glasses. I don't know. Are there any particular like adjustments or, um, uh, tips you can give or guidelines in regards to, to that for people who obviously, you know, their, their vision isn't, uh, twenty and they need like, um, you know, uh, help. Like, is there one type of, uh, assistance that's better than the other in terms of contacts, glasses, and, 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 you know, stigmatism, just like a general question, I guess, about all that. Yeah. So I always try and stay in my lane in this stuff. You should always get cleared medically by the relevant medical professional. I kind of operate in more of a teaching people how to train and try and improve with training realm. So glasses and things always want to go and see a medical professional. But if we kind of think about things in terms of restriction of eye movements, if someone can tolerate contact lenses, then in terms of performance on core, that's going to be much more preferable because the, the frames of the glasses literally yeah. create a restriction point. So when people wear glasses for long terms, they generally lose the, the, the quality of their eye movements because they're now looking within the frames of the glasses and not going to the extremities. So that means there's certain areas that aren't, get activate, aren't getting activated. So from that perspective, contacts are going to be more preferable. And I think that's why you know, we, we look at professional tennis and professional or any sport that involves a ball. We don't see too many players out there wearing glasses. So if contacts are possible but you know some people they have dry eyes and the contacts affect them then obviously that can't be done you know just do the best you can you improve the function and enjoy playing as well as possible with glasses yeah yeah definitely richard and uh yeah i was watching one of your other videos um i think it was two simple drills to what was it master uh, or to improve your forehand and backhand and and one of these drills was very interesting um juggling uh you know Something that probably people wouldn't think of, but why does that uh, help our our vision training or our vision? And why do you think people should do that? I, actually, it isn't normally the first port of call that I go for people, uh, go to okay. for people, but it can be very effective just because people have normally got other issues that I try and clear up first because getting people to have their eyes pointing at the target and seeing clearly mm -hmm. is going to be the, my, my first general priority. But juggling, obviously, the, the coordination side of things, but it's really good for improving peripheral vision because you're generally not looking at all the balls as you're doing it. You're looking forwards and it's training your peripheral vision. So we've got the focused vision, foveal vision, looking directly at a target. And then the stuff around the outside is our peripheral vision. And in terms of the sports vision world, the better your peripheral vision, it's really important for you know tactical and spatial awareness. It's also really important for your kind of balance and just movement around court and then if we go back to what we mentioned earlier you know tracking the ball on and off the strings or not looking perfectly at the ball the better your peripheral vision the, the greater the likelihood is that you'll still be able to make a, a contact so the juggling is good for the peripheral vision and obviously the, the coordination 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Got it, Richard. And, and any tips? Because I, you know, I've heard, um, you know, people break down the the watching of the ball to, um, you know, like the scanning versus the tracking. You know, because you have the, the phases of when the ball is going to your opponent and what you should be looking at there versus like when the ball's coming to you and then when the ball like after the ball bounces and and they're all like different phases and whatnot. And you arguably should be doing different things. So like, I guess what's the um, how do you break that down in terms of like what we should be looking for in those different uh, phases? So I, I don't break that down so much. And again, it's an evolving process for me, the more I learn and the more people I do it with. But I, I think a lot of the time, one of the big difficulties with the way that tennis is taught these days is we're looking at the best players on the planet and go, look, this is how the best player on the planet does it. This is how you should do it. When the reality is that they're absolutely amazing athletes and that's why they're able to do the things that we do. So in terms of the ball tracking, I think it's the same. A lot of people say, watch the ball onto the strings and in, including me, I've said that many, many times, but if your visual system doesn't have the capability of doing that, there's no correct way to, to kind of cue that. So I'm not sure there is a perfect way to watch the ball, just like there isn't a perfect way to hit a forehand because we've got so many kind of varieties of amazing players in the world. I'm more focused on working on the underlying skills that people have, because when you get your visual system functioning at a certain level, it, it just kind of negates it. Like I said, I can now crush the ball very consistently, looking in completely the wrong direction, which, which blows my mind after spending most of my career preaching the importance of keeping your head still on contact. So I always try and prioritize that, okay, you know, Let's really try and get these visual skills working as well as we can. And you'll probably find the stuff that you were trying to kind of think through and, and, and work out, it might go away. Yeah, Richard. Are there any particular tools that you also encourage people use to help them? Because I've seen like, for example, actually, I'm forgetting the name now, but it's, you know, like, say one of these mini rackets where like the, you know, it's a very small circle as opposed to, a, you know, a normal sized racket. And that's supposed to help with like your, you know, watching the ball and, and, and contact. What's that? I think it's a pointer. And then there's the new one, the saber. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, are those tools that like, I don't know, do you use that with your clients or do you recommend those? I mean, in theory, I, I can certainly understand how that could be beneficial. But for me, it, it, it always goes back to the level of compensation that goes on. So the way that we play tennis is a, is a compensation for the stuff that we can't do. You know, no one's preparing late because they just forgot to prepare on time. They're preparing late because they don't know where the ball's going. So they can't start preparing until it's bounced on their side of the court. So it doesn't matter how many times you tell them to do it. If their visual system can't do it, it can't do it. So the Sabre, potentially a fantastic training tool but it might also be one step too far for people. So maybe if you've got a more sophisticated visual system, then yeah, that's going to be a good tool for you. But for some people, it's like, yeah, let's do some deadlifts. Let's get you starting off with a 500 pound deadlift. That'll make you stronger. <laughs> uh, maybe it's a little bit too much. So we often need to break down these visual skills into much smaller components to build them up. Because if you just go from, you know, where they are and try and do something very advanced, like using one of those tools. Now you're just going to increase the amount of compensation rather than addressing the underlying issue. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Richard. And in looking at your YouTube channel and content, you know, I know we've talked a lot about um, vision, watching the ball, things like that, but then 
You've also extended your content and expertise to, I mean, a lot of other things like we were talking about before uh, we started recording about like, I I was watching a video of yours where you had mentioned how like some people have problems with the racket drop. And that's, that's actually because maybe some of the small muscles, uh, you know, in your uh, arm, they're not uh, properly, like they're not ready to, to be activated in a sense, if I'm probably not wording that correctly. But so you have, you know, a lot of videos on, on things like that, on how to help with serve power and how to get rid of tennis elbow and things like that. So I guess I was curious about like the transition uh, or not transition, but like you also have content on that as well. So you, I mean, have you also been, I guess, teaching and studying about like more things besides like the the visual aspect of it all yeah so my backstory was the amount of injuries and problems that had in terms of pain that was my main area of study and focus for my entire life so i went to university to do sports science to try and figure out okay how do we stop injuries then i went into strength and conditioning and then different types of manual therapy and then into kind of nutrition and i would never claim to be a doctor but you can take training in functional medicine so a, a large part of my career was about trying to find ways to help people get out of pain and to address injuries that were going on. So that's my primary level of expertise. The, the visual side of things came a little bit later on, just as a product of trying to address the other issues going, oh, the stuff that I've just used to get rid of all my pain and all of my injuries has now improved my visual clarity, my balance, and my coordination. So all the system. All the systems integrate together. The brain controls all of it. So in terms of injury prevention, it's all about making sure everything that we can get working properly is working properly. So when people think about straining a hamstring or something like that, now often that isn't necessarily a lack of strength or a lack of flexibility. That's a lack of coordination. It's the brain not being able to appropriately tell which muscle to contract and which muscle to contract, uh, relax at the relevant time. So often injuries are a result of poor coordination. So one of the best things you can do to prevent injuries is improve coordination. But our visual system and our balance system are also going to be really important for the prevention of injuries and for not having pain because some of these areas that we're talking about live in the parts of the brain that regulate pain. So the, the, the really cool news is the stuff that improves your ball tracking and core also tends to help get people out of pain and prevent injuries. So it, it works rather nicely together. And kind of the, the strength side of it is just one of those things. We need to have the ability to coordinate movements. We need to have a sufficient level of strength, which I think is the, the serve video that you were watching because the brain's smart. If you don't have sufficient strength in the muscles that stabilize the shoulder, there's no way it's going to let you do, you know, a a professional style racket drop on your serve. But if you don't have a balanced system that functions properly, as you go into the loading phase on your serve and your head's now tipped backwards, there's also no way that your brain is going to let you drive up and use your legs to drive you up in the air when the balance system isn't feeling very safe. So the neuro stuff just gives you a lot more options of ways that you can improve stuff and reduce injuries. Yeah, brilliant, Richard. And uh, one in particular that, uh, video that I enjoyed was um, you talking about a but pain because recently I've been having some, it's, it's interesting, it's kind of a mixture of like plantar fasciitis and like uh, Achilles tendonitis. That's what I, I think it is. Uh, still TBD. Uh, I've got an appointment <laughs> uh, with the doctor uh, for uh, next week, I think. But what are some tips for that? Because a lot of people struggle with foot pain and that can be a really annoying and um, really tough one to deal with because, you know, like the rest of your body feels fine. But, you know, when you take a step, it's <laughs> you have issues. So um, what what are your thoughts on foot pain and how to deal with it? So pain's a really complex topic. The, the very quick version is, if we look at modern pain science, um, there's a lot of research been done over the last 20 years. Pain is a protective mechanism created by people's brains in response to perceived threat. So it doesn't mean there's necessarily an injury there. It's just the brain trying to protect you. So we've got to look at what are the options, what is the brain trying to protect you against, or what's the brain trying to warn you against. Now, obviously, sometimes you get pain when things are injured. 
But often, and the research is very clear on this, people can have agonizing pain without any tissue damage whatsoever. But if we're thinking about the plantar fascia and that specifically, um, we've got a part of the brain that lives at the back and the bottom called the cerebellum. It's responsible for basically coordinating movement. So the classics are accuracy, balance, and coordination. It's kind of linked to all of our extensor muscles. So hamstrings, glutes, hamstrings, calves, plantar fascia. So it's linked to that area, which is linked to the vestibular system. So the balance system in the inner ear that we've mentioned a few times is linked to the, the cerebellum. And between them, they kind of control all this stuff at the back of the body. So if you, everything else seems fine and you should be fit and healthy, so maybe you need to work on strength or potentially because you're playing tennis and because of the massive amounts of vestibular stimulus that you've got on the tennis court, your brain is just trying to get your awareness with foot pain or whatever else is to let you know that something else kind of higher up is not working optimally and it's trying to warn you about so I, I wish I could say, yeah, if you've got calf pain, then this is what you should do. But that's a very, it'd be a massive oversimplification of the way that the, the body functions. So if someone's got foot or calf pain, the best thing to do is a full assessment on the different things. So you want to include strength, you want to include flexibility, but then really looking at the parts of the brain that coordinate these movements as kind of a basically the thing that gets missed if you go to you can go to a whole bunch of different practitioners and it's very unlikely when you've got calf pain that any of them are going to analyze the quality of your eye movements and of your ability to look at targets and keep your eyes fixed on the target but that's the control system that controls this stuff so i would look at that if it was me that had foot pain mm, that's very i know that was a long exciting. answer but i'm trying to be diplomatic no, no. <laughs> yeah no no i enjoyed it it's it's good stuff um, one other thing I was really interested about was your experience, um, training as a lefty. Cause I, as I take it, you kind of had, um, an injury and then you started training lefty. So like, how, how was that? Cause, um, that's, that's not easy. <laughs> that was the final one that got me into the neurology. I, for some reason decided mountain bike racing was a good fun thing to do in my spare time. I had a pretty bad crash and I separated this collarbone. Like you can, it's not quite attached yeah. like it should be. So that was what actually got me into the neurology was trying to rehab the pain and the issues left after that crash. And uh, just um, unfortunately, it's held in place by certain ligaments. And every now and again, it just kind of pops out of place. Obviously, I've done a lot of strength and a lot of stabilization on it. And now it's mostly stable. But a couple of years ago, it was popping out the whole time. So I was like, right, I'm just going to have to start learning to play left-handed so that if and when it completely goes, then I can still in, enjoy things. So that was kind of what that was about initially, but then now I'm playing again right-handed right and I've managed to get it stabilized. I'm really enjoying the process of learning left-handed because it's, uh, yeah, it, it's taught me a lot about tennis, as strange as it may seem, because when you grow up playing tennis and then you start to give people instructions on things, it's very different to trying to kind of learn it again you're like this should work why doesn't it work so it's been kind of fun uh, discovering ways to improve my strokes and it's actually really helped my right side as well nice and and i mean yeah any tips for you know because i mean there may be some people out there who uh maybe they're like beginners and they're wondering like should i be a right or a lefty things like that so like any things that you've done while you've been training lefty that's maybe accelerated your process of um you know becoming better at that side the hardest piece for me was the footwork and the visual recognition it sounds strange because my visual system was functioning very well right-handed but you know i love an inside out forehand who doesn't so to then be programmed so many times to do something and now have to not do that like one of my main strengths on court is my speed then you put the racket in your left hand and i now can't get to a drop shot that's so easy to get to because I just can't move quickly enough. So a big part of it was just working on the footwork without the ball there. And again, I think so many players, it's not necessarily the stroke. It's the fact that they're not in the right place for the shot, that it wasn't really possible to hit the shot that they were trying to hit from the position they were in. And tennis movements, footwork patterns are really unusual. 
we don't normally look you know look in one direction and run as quickly as we can while we're looking it doesn't work like that so when players haven't worked on those footwork patterns before i think it's a really good idea to spend time getting the movement patterns down training the footwork because it's one of the hardest parts and that was the the biggest piece of the puzzle for me as a one-handed backhand i hadn't done much open stance growing up off my left leg so just learning how to move and load off my left leg and drive through my left leg was the the, kind of the hardest thing yeah you made me think about a training session i had with uh, david uh, bailey of uh, bailey footwork method and uh yeah it was very insightful yeah he's he's really good but uh it was it was really tough (laughs) you know some footwork patterns i had never used or thought of and um yeah it's such an important piece that helps you it really can shave off time you know as well off your uh recovery and whatnot getting to the ball so that's that's really huge in terms of um hitting the ball late is like a big problem that uh players have so i was wondering if any any tips on how to become better at that or you know yeah that's yeah the way i try and get people to think through that is you've got the preparation side if the reason that you're not if the reason you're hitting it late is because you prepared too slowly and you never stood a chance of meeting the ball in an optimal position because you weren't there in time, then we've got to address preparation first, which again, for me, generally goes back to, can you read where the ball's going quickly enough, which is a large part of the problem for most people, then working on the footwork so that we can shave time there. Then forget that. Say we are set up in the right position, but we're still hitting it late. In terms of timing, we've now got two components. We've got the visual component and we've got the coordination component. So can you predict how far the ball is away and how fast it's traveling so that you can predict when and where it's going to be? So when's it going to arrive in the ideal contact zone? Because you've got to know where the ball is in order to start the swing at the right time. And then we've got the variable of how you adjust the speed of your swing. So, you know, if you from the pros if they start their swing a fraction of a second too late they'll just modify the swing and you know finish in a buggy whip style because they've got the recognition of doing that so we've got the visual component and we've got the coordination component so the way i approach it is to look for options in there are the visual skills that are affecting your ability to judge the distance and speed of the ball if there are you want to work on those train that are there coordination issues which are affecting your ability to regulate the speed of your stroke. And for most people, you find you know, both of them. And often the lower body coordination can be really problematic, kind of differences between the coordination of the, the right and left hip, because you know, higher level thinking, trying to drive through our hips a little bit more to use more efficient biomechanics rather than arming the ball. So do people have the visual recognition and then the lower body coordination based on what they're seeing visually? So I approach it looking, you know, what, what could go wrong within that? You run a bunch of assessments on someone. Okay, what isn't working in the way that it should? And then train that. Gotcha, gotcha. Because so it's, I guess, not, you know- it's never a deficiency in not trying to meet it out in front because everyone knows that they're trying to meet it out in front. Yeah, definitely. And just a matter of uh, getting there in terms of your skills. Um, with um, trying to remember. Um, oh yeah. So in terms of like being able to recognize, you know, uh, what type of spin is on the ball, and because uh, I feel like what is some of this like it just comes from pl- t- playing ex- uh, tennis experience where you're you're able to like judge the ball in terms of like, you know, when somebody hits it, like how deep is it going to land and things like that? Or can you even train those things as well off court? Yeah. So I would say you've got both sides to everything. You have to know what you're looking for. So partly the deliberate and conscious practice of trying to become aware, you know, there's lots of coaching drills for that. So a player hits it, you know, you're going to shout short or long or middle or, break the court down into different zones to help people train the skill and you know that's one of the things that is going to develop for from years of playing when someone just starts playing even if they've got the most perfectly functioned visual system in the world they're not going to be able to predict where the ball is going to land because they haven't seen it enough times so you've got the the understanding what to look for you've got the experience of seeing those situations over a period of time so that you've got expectations about what might happen and then you've got the underlying physical visual skills 
and we need both because there are millions of players out there that have been playing for 20, 30, 40, 50 years that have had plenty of options and opportunity to see the ball coming at them and still can't quickly enough. So it's both sides. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. Um, Richard, I know one of your other videos, um, really, again, been enjoying uh, checking them out, is, is kind of brain activation drills to help uh, use your kinetic chain properly and you know we talk about kinetic chain a lot uh, dr mark kovacs he, he coined that or, or you know he's he's used that and uh really been insightful with that uh, especially in terms of the serve so what's um what's the I concept there course. like what what's that <laughs> i said i love his surf course it's amazing yes yes no most most definitely uh me too um i i have that one <laughs> um so like how do how can we activate our brain you know, to help us with, with the kinetic chain and better using that? So that everything's controlled by parts of the brain. So if we're rotating to our left to hit a forehand, then the rotation is going to be driven by certain parts of the brain. So that was what I was kind of using within that video going, okay, if we activate this part of the brain, because it controls rotation to the left, that might potentially work. If we're going rotating to the right, then there's other parts of the brain we might kind of preference in terms of the rotation. So that was more of a, a trial and error style approach based on the underlying neurology. But with a, a, a person that you're kind of working with, it's more about finding the deficits. So one of the big things that happened to me playing left-handed, and I guess I should have said that in the previous answer, is I'd always had a small coordination deficit between my left hand or my left side and my right side, and I'd neglected to deal with it because I'd neglected to deal with it. But then when I was playing left-handed, it just stuff didn't work. So I spent a lot of time trying to sort out the, the left side coordination. And when I figured out a way to get it working again, it completely changed the timing of my right-handed stroke of my forehand especially because left the part of the brain that controls coordination on the left side is going to be heavily responsible for rotating to the left so the the short answer is we can try stuff based on the underlying neurology the longer approach or the, the better approach is to find the stuff that's not working on an individual because if there's imbalances side to side or things that aren't working it's like the weakest link in the chain that's what we've got to try and address yeah definitely uh richard are there a couple of books that you would recommend that maybe you've read that have really helped your tennis game that you think we should check out? Books. I actually, I love Rafa's book just because it, you know, for someone that's one of the greatest players ever, just the way he describes, you know, you would think that hitting a tennis ball is easy, but, and I should be able to do it by now, but every single shot you ever hit is is different and the spin and, you know, it's right at the start of the book, but he goes into kind of a, a spiel about that. And I think that's absolutely amazing for real, you know, for regular players to hear that that's the greatest player of all time thinking about basic shots. So I, I love that as a, a tennis book, mainly just for, for that kind of piece and the, just the way he talks about it all. So that's, I would say that's my favorite, which is odd because he's my least favorite player, mainly because he used to be Andy Murray too much. That's the only reason. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's cool it. to see Andy. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's cool to see Andy still playing. It was interesting how, um, you know, we thought that he might be retired. Was it last year or two years ago? But he's still, still going. Still, you know, despite Amazing. all the the injury issues. Yeah, so that's that's a good one. Um, by the way, do you have a Premier League team that's your favorite? I'm gonna just, I'm gonna go safe and say I'm a Tamworth supporter. They're like Division Five in England, and we'll just, I'll leave it at that, so I don't get any <laughs> hatred in response. Oh my! I support, okay, okay. I support England, England now Canada because I live there, and then Tamworth, yeah. where I'm from. Okay, okay. I'll ask you <laughs> offline for your real. No, I'm kidding. Um, now that's cool. That's an interesting club. I'll check that out. And then, uh, in terms of um, you know, just what to look out for for you, like anything coming down the pike, or you know, uh, yeah, any any new projects or anything or content, you know, on YouTube or anything you want to let us know that might be coming up. No, I think the best place to kind of look out for things is is the YouTube channel. Now, it's a very evolving process for me. I was a tennis coach for quite, you know, I did that full time when I was younger. 
I then stopped for 10 or so years while I went into the training realm. And now I'm kind of applying it all more to tennis. So the more people that come through my program, it's an evolving thing of, you know, the neurology side of things is much newer. So it's trying to find more effective ways to use it. And the more data points that we've got of, you know, what more players seem to need, then, you know, I'm just trying to refine the quality of my YouTube channels to, you know, give people the best possible help. So I think that's the the best place to start because there's a whole bunch of different videos about different things. So now I'm making a lot of videos with vision assessments and with balance assessments and with coordination assessments to hopefully help people connect the dots together that, okay, if you can't control the angle of your racket face, potentially that might be a thing to do with coordination. We can assess that. And then there's things that we might be able to do. So I'm starting to try and include more of that in the YouTube stuff. And I think that's the best place for people to, to watch it because it's there, it's free and you can start trying these different drills and hopefully start to get some benefits on court. And if people like that, then you know, it always tells them how they can kind of reach out and, and learn more. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely been enjoying it. So, uh, how about as far as like, um, social media channels, like any of those that you want to shout out that people might want to follow for, you know, just to check you out in, in your content. YouTube is the best one. So I, I should point them to my Instagram as well. There is an Instagram tennis, but I tend to neglect it because I like making the YouTube videos just because it allows you to kind of just allows you to give people more help. So YouTube is definitely the best option, but I am on Instagram as well. And if they want the, the free vision program, which I highly, highly recommend, tennishacker.net forward slash vision. You know, I, I released that free program because I want to help as many tennis players as possible. And I love people to have started work and done some foundational work on that before they come into my program because, you know, then they've got a, a baseline of you know, starting point. Yeah, no, most definitely. It's interesting, Richard, because I, I remember back in the day, I, you know, I don't remember who told me, but but they said, oh, you know, you should do some of these ex eye exercises, like, you know, moving your eyes in, in a circle, like a clock or like, you know, looking at the center and then going to one o'clock, two o'clock, et cetera. And I used to do that. And then I, and, you know, I think it actually helped my vision, but then I, I stopped. And then now I, you know, your content kind of reminds me about that, but it's uh, a little more dynamic and specific for tennis, I think. So um just really happy to have stumbled upon your stuff um shout out to my friend peter freeman for that as well uh, you did a great job on uh tennis tennis con event so that was really cool um i guess um we'll maybe just leave it with this classic question i ask pretty much every guest which is uh what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their tennis games get the free program train the vision everything that you do on court is based on how well you can see We've got loads of amazing coaches in the world. There's loads of amazing content for free. I buy, I've got programs from everyone you can think of because I love learning from different people. But none of it matters if you don't know where the ball is going. So you need the technical information because it's really important. You need to practice properly because well-structured practice facilitates improvement. But your, your body also needs to be capable of doing it. And vision training is really simple and really easy. And it, it really bridges the gap and allows you to do the stuff that you probably already know how to do. Yeah, I think this is really illuminating, Richard, because, you know, a lot of players, they may just be frustrated and just not know, like, you know, why they're just not making clean contact, shanking balls, not able to read balls. And you kind of give them, but you do give them like a new perspective, like, hey, like, <laughs> you know, vision is part of it and you, pro you probably have some uh, issues with that that you can improve. And then once you follow, you know, these, these simple steps, you can actually um, really improve your your tennis and more importantly, the, the enjoyment of, of your tennis game. Um, so definitely highly encourage everybody to check out uh, the program. Go to tennishacker.com slash vision and we'll have, uh, you know, that Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, tennishacker.net. Uh, so we can edit that. Um, but tennishacker.net slash vision. And uh, we'll have that uh, link in the show notes page as well. So uh, I picked that up and have been doing it. So I think you should too. All right, Richard. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure we'll uh, chat again soon. And I uh, really appreciate all your, your work, um, you know, with 
uh, on YouTube and your content and everything. It's really been great. So uh, thanks and talk to you again soon. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It's been, uh, been a pleasure. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Richard Bryce. Richard, thank you and big up to you for coming on to the show and for revealing the actual or, you know, the, the big football club that you actually uh, support, uh, one of the biggest ones in the world. So good luck to that club. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways, I really do hope that you enjoyed this one and took a lot away from it. Definitely a different approach than pretty much any other guests that I've had on the show. So it's always cool to learn about unique ways to improve our tennis game. And this is certainly one of them. So definitely go and check out Tennis Hacker on his YouTube channel. And you can go to tennishacker.net slash vision to pick up uh, the free program with exercises to help you improve your vision and therefore your tennis game. And I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast, which you can do at tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts, excuse me. And uh, if you do that, then you'll be able to help me uh, help the podcast. Uh, in other words, <laughs> it'll push the podcast up the charts, which will then help more people check it out and improve more players. And the best platform to do that would be Apple Podcasts, but I do appreciate it, um, your, your review on any platform that you can. So thanks so much in advance for that, if you haven't yet. And also, I uh, just want to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the show, and this one is by Colin R. Davis. And Colin said, the road to success and the road to failure are almost exactly the same. Very insightful quote there. So with that, thanks so much for listening. And I look forward to you checking out more interviews of, you know, from the podcast. And I've got a really excellent one for you for the next episode with Nick Saviano. So one of the best coaches in the world. So you definitely don't want to miss that one. With that, thanks again. And I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is your host, Mirban Aranshad. Signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.